There's a messy debate raging in Washington, D.C. That's right, and it isn't tied to COVID-19 vaccinations. The Build Back Better Act, which is President Joe Biden's economic growth package, is on the table. It's a profound investment in America's future, certainly if you're a Democrat. Republicans, on the other hand, generally view it as a budgetary albatross. We are joined on the Kansas Reflector by three people prepared to tell us why they support this legislation. They are David Jordan, president of the United Methodist Health Ministry Fund, Suzanne Weichel, senior policy analyst at the Center for Law and Social Policy, and Kelly Davidove, executive director of Child Care Aware of Kansas. I'll play the role of devil's advocate and feed the flames with some of the counter arguments to this legislation. For example, I might say at some point in the podcast uh, that the bill pending in the Senate reeks of socialism. Uh, before we dive into details, I want each of you to give us a bit of info on your organizations you represent, and then we'll then take a 30-second swing at why Congress should pass the bill, you know, kind of get it at, at what the uh, your main selling point might be. So we're going to go to my left here, and Suzanne Weichel, why don't you start, please? Great. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me today. Um, yeah, my name is Suzanne Weichel. I'm a senior policy analyst at the Center for Law and Social Policy, also known as CLASP. We are a national nonprofit, nonpartisan advocacy and policy organization focused on policy solutions that reduce poverty and advance racial equity. Um, when we think about the Build Back Better package, it's a no-brainer for us to support. It's a truly once-in-a-generation opportunity to vastly expand economic opportunity and advance racial and gender equity. It will, for the first time, make high-quality childcare and pre-K affordable for nearly every family. It slashes poverty among children and young adults by extending tax credits, creates a universal paid leave program, and takes enormous steps to improve affordability of and access to health insurance, um, and importantly, provide a solution for those Kansans who have been left out of um, affordable health options um, by the lack of Medicaid expansion in the state. So um, it's a great package with lots to benefit Kansans. All right, David Jordan, you're next. Excellent. Thanks, Tim, for having us. Uh, David Jordan, I'm the president and CEO of the United Methodist Health Ministry Fund. We're a health philanthropy based in Hutchinson, Kansas. Our, our mission is to improve the health of Kansans. Um, and the Build Back Better plan will take enormous steps to improve the quality of life of all Kansans. I think one thing we can all agree on is that costs are rising in Kansans. Kansans are struggling to deal with high increased healthcare costs, increased childcare costs, and increased cost of living. The Build Back Better plan directly addresses these concerns for Kansans by helping bring down the cost of healthcare coverage, making healthcare coverage more accessible for those uh, that are in the coverage gap, and really addressing the childcare crisis that's not just harming families, but inhibiting our ability to um, develop economically in rural parts of our state. All right, excellent. And Kelly Davidoff, please. Hi, I'm Kelly David of Executive Director with Child Care Aware of Kansas. We are a nonprofit child care resource and referral agency serving uh, the state of Kansas and Western Kansas directly. A lot of our work focuses on connecting families directly to affordable, high quality child care, and we work to support child care providers and communities as well as they tackle lack of access to affordable, high quality care. Um, I think from our perspective, when we think about the provisions in the Build Back Better Act, uh, this really represents an unprecedented investment in expanding access for families um, to high quality care. It also um, has several provisions to, to, to support child care providers directly. 
um, in ways that we haven't seen before. And so when we think about that in terms of both families and providers and what this means for communities, it's, it's really an important investment that we have never seen in the early care and education space before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly that, that area is a big problem in Kansas and many other states. All right, so uh, I'm going to try to channel here real quickly. U.S. Representative Jake Letourneau, he's a second district congressman, represents a big 25 or so counties in eastern Kansas. This is what he had to say about Build Back Better Act. The radical policies inside this legislation will make it harder for job creators to stay afloat and will force Kansans to dig even deeper into their pockets to cover the cost of soaring prices. I guess he's talking about a tax hike. This bill also grants mass amnesty to millions of illegal immigrants, allows taxpayer-funded abortions, and paves the way for a government takeover of our health care system. Then, U.S. Senator Jerry Moran, also a Republican from Kansas, long-standing long uh, lawmaker in Washington. So he, he is concerned in part about uh, the president's intent to make the IRS more powerful and make people actually pay their taxes instead of having the rich people not. And uh, so Americans are more wary than ever of the federal government and the financial system. Congress and the Biden administration should prioritize strengthening faith in the financial system, not pursuing policies that will push people away. Rather than listen to the enormous pushback from Americans and eliminating consideration of this invasive mandate, uh, Democrats are pushing through the taxes needed to fund their massive spending spree. So that sort of represents a bit of the Republican perspective on this. Sharice Davids, the Kansas Democrat who represents a congressional district, is uh, certainly supportive of this. So what we're going to do, Kelly, is we're going to start with one of the big ticket items here. And let's talk about universal preschool and, and child care subsidies and trying to help children before they enter the public school system. So in terms of the bill, uh, what are some of the details that it's offering? Uh, this bill has a, a few different um, t topics that it's essentially addressing. Um, first and foremost, around access, and that includes um, significant financial support for families to offset the costs of, of childcare, essentially. Um, so over over a period of three to six years, um, w what this what this legislation does is is really increase. Um, support for families um, with their child care costs and essentially up to 250% of state median income. That is a really uh, significant shift in terms of how we have looked at child care assistance in the past. It moves away from the federal poverty level and looks at state median income, hmm. um, which means that middle class families will have access to support uh, to offset the cost of child care. And in fact, uh, family contributions will be capped um, for at a maximum of 7% at that 250% level of, of state income. So say that income. again. So it's, it's an income-driven uh, mm -hmm. formula. It is. And it's just not going to chew up 25% of a family's income to pay for child care. That's exactly right. This really goes a long way to support Kansas families that are already struggling to meet basic um, costs of living in, in our state. Um, the, this keeps the cost of child care for a family at a, a really reasonable um, level of their, their gross family income, mm -hmm. um, with 7%, like I said, being the, the maximum that a family would pay if they're at 250% of the state median income. Um, Just think about that for a second. Can you draw a picture for us 
of what that might mean to a family of, of three living in Manhattan, Kansas or something? Sure. Um, if you think about, you know, 100% of the state median income. So actually the median income for the state of Kansas is about $92,000 for a family of four. Um, with, with these provisions, um, basically they, they, that would cap um, how much they have to pay. If they're at 250% of the, the state median income, mm -hmm. that translates to about $15,000 annually that a family would pay. Um, versus what they uh, necessarily had been paying before. And, and it also, with this bill, there are several provisions that um, increase or are designed to increase the overall quality of childcare and the supply as well. So with expanded family choice in the mix, that really gives uh, Kansas families several opportunities that they don't currently have when it comes to selecting um, childcare that meets their unique family needs. Yeah, anybody else want to step yeah, in? Yeah, I just Suzanne? want to reiterate what Kelly's saying, that this is so monumental in terms of childcare. I know um, I'm a mom of two young kids in childcare. Childcare is expensive. I know families across the state struggle to afford it. When opponents of this legislation worry about, you know, families' costs, they need to pass this. This puts money right back in the pockets of Kansas families. So there could be families out there now that are paying $2,000 a month for childcare mm -hmm. that could be spending $2,000 a year for childcare after this legislation is passed. That's a huge difference. I mean, that is just a game changer when it comes to what Kansas families are able to spend their money on. And yeah, go ahead. I think that as we think about this as a system for the state, 97% of the state has some type of a childcare desert. So not enough childcare providers to meet the demand. Uh, so this is hindering our ability for economic development, particularly in rural communities, because we can't attract workers to communities because there's no child care. Child care workforce is the workforce that supports the workforce. So we need to be doing everything we can do to protect and expand communities, particularly throughout rural Kansas. And this is a really tangible way. As Suzanne said, and Kelly had said, um, on a family that makes $90,000 a year, which is the median income, their child care cost would go down from $10,000 a year, which is the average per child, to $1,800 per year. But it would also provide important payment to child care providers that doesn't exist right now because there's no system in Kansas that's really robustly funding child care. Um, so it would mean providers would be able to pay child care workers better wages. The average wage for a child care worker in Kansas is $10.20 an hour, and that doesn't always come with benefits. That's 43rd in the country. So we think about how can we support families? It's by having high quality educated providers in these centers. We can pay them more. Families will have more money to spend in their communities, it really would be a boon for Kansans. So rather than talk about boogeymen, I think it's really important to focus on how this benefits Kansas. It would help families' budgets, it would help make sure that families have childcare so they can work, and it would help provide that important support for communities so that they can go out and bring businesses back to rural Kansas. You know, a fiscal conservative would say that, well, you know, the, uh, the marketplace should decide how much people are with, uh, are paid yeah, in I mean, these jobs. I think but actually that, that system hasn't worked, and this has been a crippling problem uh, in Kansas and elsewhere for a long time. In fact, I think they just did a big housing survey of Kansas, hadn't been done in a quarter of a century, and we have a big housing shortage, affordable housing shortage, and we also have, I think they found out, a real child care problem. Yeah, a really significant child care problem. I think underlying all of this is Kansas. Kansas's 
unwillingness or inability to bring back federal dollars to help supplement state general fund dollars. And it's really negatively impacting the early childhood system. So we rank 48th out of the 50 states in terms of federal funding for early childhood systems in alignment within that systems. And that's really negatively impacting families and ability, the ability of communities to attract businesses because there's no childcare to do it. If you look at the childcare sector, um, you could say it's a market failure, but the market can't exist. There's not an ability to financially sustain private childcare centers outside of west of Wichita and really outside of Douglas County, Johnson County, and Shawnee County. There is no private providers like La Petite or Kinder Care in, throughout Western Kansas. Because that's striking because that's Republican country. I want to shift to another part of this uh, piece of this. We can come back if, if we want to some of it. But there's another part of this uh, is universal uh, education for children zero to five, correct? So Kelly, why don't you introduce us to that? Um, sure. One of, one of the um, really exciting pieces of the legislation is provisions around universal pre-K. Um, but this bill does it in a way that we haven't seen before. It is not just um, what you might think of in terms of traditional preschool. Uh, this legislation sets out um, provisions to create a, a high-quality, inclusive, mixed delivery. And I'll talk about what that means in a second. Um, but most importantly, voluntary uh, preschool program for three- and four-year-olds in the state. It does have to build on existing preschool infrastructure, so it's not meant to replace what we might currently have already. Um, but it also has really exciting opportunities for childcare providers to participate in, in this piece of the, of the, the uh, legislation as well. So rather than uh, creating a preschool program that might um, exclude childcare providers, that's not what we have here. There's opportunity for childcare providers and, and family childcare uh, as well. So home-based hmm. family childcare providers can participate in the universal pre-K program. Um, and very importantly, this supports family choice. This allows families to choose the environment that best meets their local needs, um, their unique family needs, and um, in, in ways that also support access to high quality education so that no matter where a child is, they're going to be able to access really, really high quality early care and education. Suzanne, this is probably the largest expansion in education, maybe 100 years. I mean, you could look at it this way too, because, you know, we want kids, they're supposed to go to school, first grade even, I, I, th I think. Kindergarten's not required still, or is it? Uh, so so we're, we're pushing the educational spectrum down much lower in a very big way. So is this really needed? Absolutely it's needed. I mean, it's, it's not uh, an expansion of education. Kids are being educated. This is really an investment in making sure that they are getting the best education they can, the best care they can, during the years of their lives when their brains are developing the most. I mean, the ages from zero to three and zero to five are so critical for brain development that we know that if kids are in high quality settings, that they're going to thrive later on in life. It's just that clear. And their families are going to be able to participate in the workforce. I mean, there are so many women across the state, women, mostly women, I'm going to say, maybe some men as well, but mostly women who are either not in the workforce or have left the workforce during COVID because childcare is unaffordable. It doesn't make economic sense. If we can support those parents to be in the workforce while at the same time providing outstanding care to children, whether it's in a home-based center or a large center in 
a city, it's a win for everybody. Like, I just don't see how anybody in that equation loses. Businesses, their employees are happier because they know their children are being taken care of. The children are thriving. The parents have more disposable income to buy food and pay for housing. I mean, it's just a win across the board. It's David absolutely Jordan, yeah. necessary. David Jordan, I just, this whole bill is like a forest. There's so many elements to it. So we're gonna just skip to the next tree. And uh, let's, David, I think you can introduce healthcare access here. There's, there's big, big pieces of this that involve uh, healthcare expansion and opportunity to get proper healthcare. You know, Kansas is one of the states that has chosen not to expand Medicaid, and clearly for political reasons. There's over 100,000 Kansans that are on the health care gap, um, and there's many more Kansans that access health care through the federal marketplace as a result of the Affordable Care Act. This, is, this bill represents an amazing opportunity to expand health coverage to Kansans, which will also help them work and help them address health concerns. Um, Kansas has 262,000 uninsured residents. We rank 33rd highest in terms of the uninsured rate. So there's clearly work that we can do to improve access to health care and to, to improve the health of Kansans. Um, major provision is this bill would essentially make Medicaid expansion possible for the next four years through federal action. It would make Kansans eligible for coverage through the marketplace for those folks that earn too much to qualify for Medicaid here in Kansas. So um, that benefits the 100,000 Kansans that are in the coverage gap now, but also benefits our hospitals. We have 72% 70, of our hospitals are financially vulnerable. Half of the uncompensated care in our critical access hospitals and rural communities is from folks that would be covered through this solution. So this is really monumental. Um, for the federal government to step in and do what the Kansas legislature refuses to do, which is to close the coverage gap for the folks in, in, uh, that earn too much to qualify for Medicaid. That's the single mother with two kids that works half time in a minimum wage job, is considered too rich to qualify for Medicaid in Kansas, and this would help provide health coverage for her. Um, and help Trying to draw more people into, the, yeah, absolutely. into Medicaid. And, and, um yeah, so the, the counter-argument to Medicaid expansion is that why is government doing this, you know? Are we going to be the, the UK or Canada the next time we turn around and just have socialized medicine? I think that's part of the objection to it, and cost and, 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 and other issues. Uh, Suzanne, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I certainly don't think we're going to turn into the UK. Um, I mean, the truth is that government subsidizes all health care. It subsidizes employer-sponsored health care through tax credits that our employers take. Um, and it's subsidizing healthcare right now through healthcare.gov. The unfortunate reality is that for how many years now, coming up on a decade, people in Kansas and 11 other states remaining who simply don't earn enough money to qualify for the assistance that all of everyone else is getting through some mechanism. And this writes that wrong. Um, it's a huge economic justice issue. It's a huge health justice issue. Um, and it's just another, it's one way to ensure that everyone has access to healthcare, which I think if the last two years have taught us anything, it's that, you know, maybe we'd all be a little bit better off if everyone felt like they had the ability to go see a doctor when they were sick. David, do you want to explain, you, I think you said that there was a dozen states that haven't uh, advanced Medicaid expansion. Kansas is among those, correct? Correct. And also the, you said the reason was political. Could you explain that? 
Well, it's an overwhelming number of Kansans support, Republicans and Democrats support expanding Medicaid. So expanding eligibility for Medicaid for Kansans uh, that are childless or have children between 38% of the federal poverty level and 138% of the federal poverty level. The federal government pays 90% of the cost for that expansion population, which is about 100,000 Kansans that are uninsured and in that Medicaid coverage gap. Um, the benefits are you know, bringing those federal tax dollars back to Kansas uh, to create jobs would create over 13,000 jobs by, by putting that money in rural communities, stimulating the economy and rippling throughout. It would protect rural hospitals because 72% of them are financially vulnerable because they're paying, um, they're not getting paid for, for Kansans that are uninsured. So this would wipe off about 50% of that uncompensated care. And most importantly, it would provide health coverage to 100,000 Kansans um, and help address things like medical debt too. So that's a really important step that we can take, which is closing the Medicaid coverage gap for hardworking Kansans, working poor really. Uh, the folks we're talking about are single mothers. And if you earn more than $8,000 a year, you're earning too much to qualify for Medicaid in Kansas. But you don't earn enough money, which is the federal poverty level, around $16,000 a year to qualify right now for subsidies to buy private coverage through the Affordable Care Gap. So yeah, there's a gap. There's That's a gap. The gap. So That's essentially $8,000 to $16,000 a year. How many people year. are in the gap? Do we know? About 100,000 Kansans are, okay. are in that coverage gap. And that's, it has huge consequences on health, medical debt, and really folks' ability to work. At the end of the day, Medicaid helps people get healthy so they can re-enter the workforce. One of the things that we hear constantly from businesses, because Chambers of Commerce support expanding Medicaid, is that we can't find folks to come back into the workforce. Well, part of the reason is people aren't healthy enough to re-enter the workforce. Yeah. This is proven. You look at conservative states like Ohio. When they expanded Medicaid, it helped return tens of thousands of residents to the workforce because they were healthy enough to start searching for a job again. Or they could take a job that didn't provide health care, like child care. Kelly, I wanted to ask you, just kind of overarching on child care, maybe even in this health care too, how do, we, how do we assure there's quality programs? I think you touched on the child care quality elements of it, but how, you know, this is going to require a big government bureaucracy? Or do you think part of the infrastructure is in place to go ahead and just broaden this and make it work? Yes, I think uh, Kansas has some of the infrastructure in place that would lay the foundation for what is um, outlined in the Build Back Better Act. Um, so, for instance, uh, over the last several years, uh, we've been working um, as a state early childhood system to design a, a quality rating improvement system in Kansas. Uh, our version is called uh, Links to Quality, um, and that really works with child care providers on uh, achieving <laughs> recognition for the quality that they are implementing in their program and continuing to improve from there. So Build Back Better Act has some provisions around um, quality rating improvement systems for states. Um, Kansas has the, the foundation there and uh, can build on that as we continue to work to improve and quality. And do you think this child care will help in some of these areas, of state, maybe the more rural areas where there's just not access to child care? That it'll really help there? Yeah, there, there is some exciting provisions. Uh, in People in Russell, Kansas are going to be happy. Well, I would hope so. Um, there, there are some, some provisions in the bill also to, to help build the, the supply of childcare because quality is one piece of it, mm -hmm. um, but quality is often a moot point when there isn't a lot to choose from. Right. Um, so that is another exciting piece. All right, Suzanne, I, we're going to move to another tree in our little forest here, political forest, and there's some anti-poverty elements to the legislation. And could you just 
pick a couple nuggets there for us? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that came out of one of the last COVID relief bills was the um, child tax credit monthly payments um, and making those refundable. So uh, many parents across Kansas probably noticed in July um, that they started receiving a monthly payment from the IRS. Um, depends on how many children they have and what the ages of those children are. But essentially, this change to the tax code is directly putting money into families' pockets that they would otherwise have to wait until tax filing season to get. So they're able to use that money, you know, every month. To and studies and surveys are showing they're using that money to do things like buy food and buy school supplies, um, help with their housing costs, and really meet basic needs um, while also helping to pay down debt, which is incredibly important for families. So, are there any restrictions on how they can spend that money? Nope. There are no they could go on holiday. They go on a Caribbean cruise. It's think about it as in terms of your your tax refund when you file taxes, but you're getting some of that in advance on a monthly basis. So you're okay. able to spread that out over the course of the year <laughs> and use that. You know, if you have a car repair that needs to happen in August, you can make that happen so that you can keep your job because you have transportation versus having to wait for your tax refund. Take your kids to childcare. Absolutely. Go to the doctor. Absolutely. So we know that in October this year, which I think is the latest data, we have over half a million Kansas children um, benefited from these payments. They went to over 300,000 families in Kansas. Um, now, Build Back Better extends these monthly payments for a year and very importantly makes them available to the very lowest earners in the state. Um, if Build Back Better does not pass um, by the end of the year, those checks will not continue into January and December 15th will be the last check um, that families receive. So this is a really, this is a major thing. This, um, you know, is reducing child poverty significantly. National studies have shown that it's reducing, you know, keeping more than 3 million children out of poverty. I mean, like if we could just stop and think about that for a minute, that 3 million fewer people were in poverty, children were in poverty last month because people are able to get their tax refund in advance. I mean, that is just enormous. And, you know, the COVID and the federal response to COVID has been, even conservatives would say that, that right, lifting those number of people out of poverty is pretty striking. This has shown us over the past, you know, five or six months that families are getting these payments, that this is a policy that works, that families are spending this money to meet their basic needs and to support their children, which is what it's intended for. And it would just be a, a true shame if come January 15th, those checks stop arriving. And one of the things that make this part of the bill interesting in Kansas is that we had a couple governors in the past who put very, very tight restrictions on, on you know, federal, federally funded cash assistance to families uh, with kids, I believe. And, you know, so restricted the uh, length of time you can get assistance, the amount you could get it, what you could spend it on, yep. all of these things. And so it might have a bigger dent in Kansas maybe than some states? I mean, possibly, but I think that the, the reality is it's having a huge dent in every state. I mean, this is just, this is really important tax policy that benefits families. Um, and it's, it's allowing families to support their children um, in ways that they feel they need to. It's making, it's letting them make choice. It's, you know, accommodating for how family budgets change month to month, depending on circumstances. Um, and it's keeping children out of poverty. I mean, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Well, I think specific to Kansas, I think, Tim, you brought up a good point. I mean, you think about some of the policies enacted during the Brownback administration, which really limited um, assistance that families could get. We know that one in five Kansas families before the pandemic were in poverty, 
Um, but we know that those policies enacted by the Brownback administration really drove kids into the child welfare system, well documented by KU research. Um, we know it made it harder for folks to get health care. And again, it's, we're seeing those implications as it's harder for Kansans to enter the workforce. Um, so this direct payment is going to benefit Kansans and continue to benefit Kansans where it matters most in their monthly budget and their checkbooks. I mean, if, if the delegation of Jerry Moran and Roger Marshall really want to look at tangible ways to help Kansas families' budgets, they'd continue this tax credit, which provides $300 per kid per month um, and $350 per kid per month under six. I mean, that's real money to Kansas families, especially when the state median income is uh, $90,000 a year. These people are going to benefit, and but it's gonna, that money's going to ripple through. Well, Senator Roger days. Marshall, Representative Jake Turner, if they were sitting right here in this chair, uh, they would say you're just a raging socialist. You know, they they might they I think they want families to to be better off, but they're not willing to do this. Well, I mean, this is how do you get the the United States Senate to vote for this? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, this is bringing Kansas tax dollars back to them so they can allocate it in a way that makes sense for their budget and providing support to, the, to those who need it, those hardworking Kansans. And that's really what should ground all of us, whether or not it's Senator Moran, Senator Marshall, uh, or Congresswoman Davids. I mean, I think, I think Kansans are a hardy bunch, and it's how do, we, how do we make sure that we're focused on them and bringing down their cost? And this legislation does it. Mm-hmm. All right, now we're going to, we see there's other trees in our forest. We're going to skip some of those. And these may not be some of your areas of expertise, but uh, feel free to comment at will. Uh, just pretend you're sitting in a bar blabbing with your friends. You can say whatever you want. So there's drug pricing caps in this bill to try to limit the cost. And I, it seems to me that there was an element of it that talked about uh, inflationary adjust. Maybe the increases of some drugs could go above the rate of inflation. Does that sound familiar? Well, I, I mean, I think the major, the, a couple of the major pieces for drug pricing is just how does this make drug prices more affordable for Kansans and for all seniors. And I think there's some caps on drug prices so that no senior is paying more than $2,000 a year for drug prices, which I think, again, this is this legislation is grounded as how does it affect real people? How does it affect the, the, the seniors in Kansas that are struggling with putting food on their table or paying for prescription drug prices? Kansas is an aging state. Over By 2066, over one quarter of our population will be over the age of 65. So we need to be doing everything possible from a policy standpoint to make sure that it's an affordable place to live, particularly live in place in rural communities. By bringing down drug prices, it's going to benefit rural Kansas seniors. I think the other piece that's really really uh, a no-brainer to do, and it should be a no-brainer from a bipartisan standpoint, is allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices like other countries do. Medicare is the biggest buyer of uh, prescription drugs, and they're prohibited right now by policy for negotiating with drug prices to mm. bring them down, sort of bringing into the mix some generics, but really, how can we use our purchasing power like any government does for other goods to bring down costs and get better deals? And right now, they're prohibited from doing this. So this will bring down the cost of prescription drugs for the federal government. There's no reason that our delegation should be against this provision. There's a lot of people that can relate to that. And I think when you have a big hodgepodge bill like this, there's going to be people that love these six pieces and hate these other four. And you have to just weigh whether or not you're going to vote for it. Uh, it's called bundling in the Kansas legislature. Uh, another piece of this is maternal health that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, it would extend postpartum uh, services to, to families. So this would help moms 
but it would help families and kids, right? Kelly, yeah. Suzanne? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think it's important for people to understand how big of a role Medicaid plays in the in prenatal care and paying for births in the state. I think Medicaid pays for about four out of every 10 births in the state and prenatal care. Unfortunately, Kansas still has a policy in place where if a, if a woman is receiving Medicaid for her prenatal care, that insurance ends 60 days after um, she gives birth, which I think anybody who has given birth or been around somebody who has knows that 60 days is certainly not long enough to both recover from um, the pregnancy and giving birth, but then all the things that can happen post-complications, whether that's physical health implications or mental health implications that you need to deal with. So what this bill would do would require states to extend that postpartum coverage to 12 months, which is really what the data shows is the minimum that's needed to ensure that new moms are healthy and therefore you know those babies are healthier and their families are in a better place. Get her a good start. This bill also is very sweeping. There's climate change bits in there for clean energy. There's affordable housing and earned income tax credit for low-income folks. Education, expand Pell Grants, help historical black colleges, tribal colleges. There's a nutrition program and try to boost the school lunch program, but also to provide some funding for children to get a decent meals in the summer. There's immigration elements in here, which is what Jake LaTurner seems irritated by. One other quick thing before we go, our time is slipping away, is the cost of this. There are tax increases. So the cost will just, we're going to round it to, to billions. If you get 2.4 billion cost, there's some revenue in here of 2.3. Do you think you can all opine on this? Do we think the tax increases are, are, are worth it to make these investments? What do we think? You go first, Kelly. Um, well, I, th I think, you know, again, just going back to the, the, the investment level in early care and education and what this means for um, young children, their families, and, and, and long term what that means for our Kansas economy and our, our communities, uh, this is well worth the investment overall. David? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a, an unprecedented investment in uh, moms, families, healthy lives, and in our communities. It's going to bring money back to Kansas to create jobs and it's going to help families have more money to spend in our communities and it's going to result in a healthier Kansan. Suzanne, the last word here. Yeah, it's absolutely worth it. So I just want to be really clear that the taxes that would be raised to pay for this are not on the average Kansan. If you make less than $400,000 a year, you have nothing to worry about when it comes to your tax bill. This is really paid for by making the wealthy pay their fair share, which is hugely popular. Um, and the Congressional Budget Office and what would be the equivalent of a fiscal note in Kansas says that, you know, over the long run, this reduces the deficit and is fully paid for. So there's really no concern here about, you know, overspending what we can do. We can certainly afford this if everybody pays their fair share and we just move forward with it as it's written. Right. You're right about that. The tax increases be on extremely wealthy people, in my perspective, extremely wealthy and on corporations. I want to thank David Jordan, President of the United Methodist Health Ministry Fund, Suzanne Weichel, Senior Policy Analyst at the Center for Law and Social Policy, and Kelly Davidov, Executive Director of Child Care Aware of Kansas, for joining us today. Thank you all.